All right, if you haven't already, Ephesians chapter, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And you see up there, it says it's a study of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. But our study is going to take us to chapter 12 today as we're beginning the conclusion. We're working on the conclusion today and next Sunday. We're looking at this book that is trying to get us to have a proper understanding of life. And so you look at verse 2, it says, vanity of vanities, it's the passage that we read, all is vanity. If you weren't with us, know that there's a sense of emptiness that the wisest man in the world has come to. And so he realizes that life apart from God is meaningless. And my hope, my desire as we go through this study is that none of you end up like this woman in this picture coming to a place in your life where you basically say, Wow, how did I get here? I mean, I would hate to come to the end of my life, my 50s, my 60s, my 70s, my 80s, and say, how did I get here? What did I do? What did I, why have I done what I've done? This individual out in the middle of a desert, not knowing where to go, what, really where she's at, what she's done, I think it's a great picture. And it carries a lot of the weight as to what, Solomon has done for us and what Solomon has done through this book if you've been reading it and you've been studying it you see that he, he he's piling on Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived he was someone that God we learned had been given great insight into life and instead of using it profitably for God Solomon intellectually says you know what I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to live a really crazy life for me. Whether it's through possessions, the gold, the silver that he got. Whether it was through just continually just productive building projects. The ways that Solomon lived were of intellectual superiority, but apart from God. And then we saw the fact that he lived this life that was based upon, was it verse uh, 16, 17, 17, it says, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Basically, I was going to live the most sinful life I could. And when it was all said and done, Solomon realized it just isn't worth it. And that's part of the wisdom I want you guys to understand, is that it's just not worth it. And Solomon has shown that no matter where you go, because you could say, well, live in a, a life where I'm just going to live for my business, or I'm just going to live for my family. It's like You think, well, it's not wrong to have a business. It's not wrong to have a family. We can say, yeah, it's wrong to be sen- um, sexually sinful, drugs and all that. Yeah, you can all get that. But no matter what it is, Solomon's already lived it for you, and he says it's just not worth it. And so what, what I brought up this picture last week of um, the fact of the Garden of Eden. Would you trust God? I, I mean, in the Garden of Eden, we can all look now and say, oh my goodness, if Adam and Eve understood all the things that were going to happen, they would never have chosen to eat from the fruit of the tree of the middle of the garden. Adam ultimately being responsible. But for us, here's a sense where we've been given the wisdom and the blessing to know that even in this fallen world, we're already in a sinful world, right? We're, 
It's not that we're bringing the curse on the world or anything, but there is the reality that if we live for God, we're gonna choose far better than the person that is the unbeliever. And so we said last week that the only purposeful, meaningful pursuit is to pursue God through Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And this is what we want to do. We want to be people, we want to be people that pursue God. And that's where the main focus is. You'll, you'll see in your sermon notes when we get down, you could we can flip them over. We're going to talk about living for God. Living for God. That's what we want you to do. And, and there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And all of us have gone through pain. And all of us have gone through suffering that are just immeasurable. We all wish that we could wish live the idyllic life and nothing bad ever happened. But it's not true. Nothing. I, I don't know anyone who has had a perfect life. And if you want to talk to me afterwards, come after me. I'd like to know. But, you know, this is what we have found in the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? Life without God is meaningless, all right? It's meaningless, meaning that there's not going to be any purpose to your life if you don't live for God. And the other thing that was so hard for us to deal with, and I want to keep before you, is that life is not fair even for believers. Life's not fair. It's not, it's not fair. What do you mean? Well, as we go through this book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll allude to it in a little bit, the reality of it is, is he does talk about the fact that you could be one of the smartest people in the world, one of the smartest people who follow God, and bad things happen to you. We're going to show you a quote of Oswald Chambers later. And he's a man, I've got one of his, a couple of his books. He was a great pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I was thinking about him this week because I didn't know this about him when I was getting the information for this quote. He died in World War I as a chaplain. I'm thinking, man, this is a godly man who maybe some of you have got his book, um, some, some of his books, um, why would bad things happen to a good people? Well, because we live in a fallen world and life is not fair, even for believers. So why do these bad things happen? Because number one, we live recognizing that there's none good. All right, even believers, there's none of us that are good. We're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's the reality that we're living in a world with a curse. And this world is cursed and there's nothing that, that we can ever do. All creation groans, not until God makes a new heavens and a new earth are we going to be outside of this curse. And then there's the reality of the fact that as we, we who have come to faith, God wants us, the passage that we looked at last week in First Peter, talks about the fact that our faith gets put on trial, our demonstration through fiery trials. And the reason I starred the word faith there is because there's like eight or ten subpoints of all the things that God does through trials to build our faith, demonstrate our faith, um, to use our faith to impact others. And all of these just sometimes like can be frustrating because you just want to say, God, I just want a nice, easy life. You know, I, I just want a nice, easy life. And it just doesn't happen that way. 
And like Solomon is just trying to make us aware of this because of the world we live in. You people who have this understanding have a better grasp of life than the, more, more, the smartest people in America, smartest people in the world, because they don't grasp this. You do. And so as we work through this, we, we've said if, that as Solomon is piling on, one through seven, all work never ends. Verse three, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? It, it's not the fact that Work is the problem. We must always keep that before us. Work's not the problem. It's the f- because we're going to all work for all eternity. Work is part of eternity. Work isn't the curse. The work is the fact that here I am, I build a build, big building, and it's great. And I look at it, and I think, this is just a great building. But the next thing you know, it either rusts or falls, begins to decay, and it's not going to last forever. And then even if it lasts for two, three hundred years, I die, and I don't get to experience all of it. That's part of this work never ends. It's, it's all just frustrating. It's all frustrating. And so he took it to the fact of verse 8 to 11, the fact that there's nothing, there's nothing that is really new under the sun. And that expression, new under the sun, was an expression used in 3, verse 9, verse 14, used in other parts and different ways throughout this book. The idea of there's no experience that is and inherently new, not like what we're going to experience in heaven. Things are going to be conceptually in a way that you never imagined when we go to heaven. And so piling on all earthly pursuits end in pain. You look at verse 18, because in such wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. You know, life is painful. Um, And as we go through that, one of the scary realities I said was verse 15, the fact that what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. You guys think about that this week. For those of you who were with us last week, I hope you thought about it. If you weren't with us, verse 15 is a very difficult verse because there's the reality of the fact there are things that are broken in our world, that will, in our life, that can never be fixed, and there's things that should be there. There are things that should be there that will never be that will never be counted and and you know i was thinking about the fact that you know when i look back in my life how i wanted an idyllic youth you know we all would love to have a a a youth that everything works out perfectly but then you know they don't i had you know i i broke my teeth when i uh, on the day before my birthday you know i was i wasn't as tall as i would like to be so i couldn't be that a big star basketball player or football player or didn't have the athletic ability and then you start to learn even by third and fourth grade you're not being picked for the all-star teams and you don't have this certain ability and then through it you know i watched my mother got sick and today's always a hard day for me today is january 27th today is the day my mother died in 1982 it's a day that i run through my mind every from the morning, I had a test at 8 a.m. I had a test at 10 o'clock. I came home at 11. I came back from those tests at 11.30, 11.35. My friend told me they needed to call home. By 1 o'clock, I was on a car ride to, to Youngstown, Ohio from Columbus with my best friend who ends up, after I become a believer, stopping being my best friend. By 4 o'clock, I walk into a hospital bedroom, and the, the, the room is completely empty. And I turn to the nurse, where's my mother? And she says, you know, you better come aside over here. We're going to have to tell you. And then, you know, through the evening of meeting everybody, that whole day is, 
impressed upon my mind. Two days later, my brother, who is now dead, is crying, and he's 15 years old, and I'm holding him, and he's saying, Mike, what are we going to do now, now that mom is dead? And you know, I'm sure every one of you guys can come up here and go through all of that and think about all the different painful things that you've been through. Life is painful. And then I thought to myself as I, as I, this, with this verse, you can't count all the things that are wrong. I thought to myself, you know, I watch parents, and I've done this. I'm going to make life ideal for my kids, and I'm going to try and protect my kids. And then today I could say I feel like I failed. I feel like I failed as a parent. I wish my kids didn't have to go through some of the things they've gone through. And, and that's where all of this, when we look and understand what Solomon is saying, life is painful. It's very, very hurtful. And so as we come now to the end of this book, the book summary, okay, is that Solomon, what he does in the beginning, this is absolutely just the, the start. If anybody would like this, I'm, what I'm about to give you, I'm going to give you like nine, ten points here. You can't follow this. You can't write these down that quick. But this is the essence of where this book goes. Because what he's done at the beginning is talk about human achievement. The fact that it doesn't produce anything. And then he goes into chapter 2. That if you seek pleasure and you seek it or getting pleasure. We're talking sexual pleasure, drinking pleasure, fun pleasure. It all ends up empty. And then he goes into the fact that if you live and say, you know what, I'm just going to be the smartest man around. I'm going to be somebody like, a, like an Edison or Jefferson or something like that. Some of these great forefathers that are just really, really practical people. And you say, look, this is what I want to do. I want to live very practical. I'm going to live really smart. You know, I'm going to do all of that. You go through these verses and it shows, it just ends up for not because either you die or something bad happens. And then he goes into the fact of uh, tied to that working very effectively. So not only am I going to be practical and wise how I live, but then I'm going to be very effective and you are effective. But then these chapters or verses will tell you how it ends up in not. And then, you know, the great passage on time. There's a time for this, a time for that, you know, becomes the bird song. The, the song, you know, we like to control time, but then he talks about how man can't control time, and things keep coming even though you don't want to have them come. And then chapter six, four goes into, you know, you could be somebody that's in an oppressive government, and just the dealing with that. I mean, so thankful that we're born in America, right? We are very thankful. We could have been born in a country where it was not. We weren't allowed to 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 study our bibles and there are countries like that and and just imagine what it would be like to grow up where there wasn't a church on every corner there wasn't tv or radio that allowed you to listen to bible think programs so then chapter five goes into superficial religion chapter um, six through eight talks about the random nature of life and how life just isn't fair at times how things just you know all of a sudden you know you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing but then like you know i'm going to get um i'm going to get a medical checkup and the next thing you know (laughs) on the way to the medical checkup somebody runs a red light and kills me you know random nature of life you know if i didn't go for that medical checkup i would never been hit by the car you know so that that's part of the emptiness and you think wait a second it shouldn't be like this and then man has no idea what comes after him after he dies chapters 9 through 11 
And just the genius of that. You, know, like you work really hard and you make a great home. You make a great business. But then you die and your kids are absolutely foolish. Or the people who take over your business are absolute idiots and they ruin it. And so all of this, you'd say, what great despair. Well, Solomon is trying to get all of us to say, no, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do the right thing. And through it all, that's why he said, if you can see this, so therefore man should enjoy life now, but not in sin. Because the idea is if you do live your life with sin, it's going to come and it's going to make it worse. So that's where we're going. And so here's the end of the book. And I'd ask you all to turn there, turn, turn to the end of Ecclesiastes. I hate putting these things up on the board um, in, with the hatred of the thought that you're not turning in your own Bibles. I want you to turn to your own Bibles. It's a Ecclesiastes. I'll get there myself. Okay. Ecclesiastes 12. And I want to read. It says, The conclusion, what all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. And so here he says, this is the conclusion, all right? So now you can look up. This is the conclusion. When all has been heard is this. And basically, if you flip your sermon notes on the back, you see there's three instructions. And the, and the idea here is all of this is encompassing the idea of someone that's living for God. You want to be a person that lives for God. The general big picture that you've come to faith and the only way you're going to live for God is that you've repented from your sin and you turn and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you live for him. And as Old Testament, we understand as Solomon comes here, he, we who now have that understanding that this is how you live for God through faith in Christ, understand that these all fit. And there are three instructions. Two of them are direct commands. The word fear here is a command, and the word keep is a command. And then this explanation is an instru- also I, I, not a command, but like an awareness. So I thought, well, all of these then work as instructions because we're going to see God's going to bring every act to judgment. And the instruction is for you to be aware of that, for you to know that. So f- fill in the blank if you have your sermon notes. First of all, we're, we're supposed to be living for God. This is what we're to do. Live for God. All right? And then the very first instruction, which the only one we're going to get to today, is the very first one. Live by fearing him. And the idea of fearing him, okay, is all in this understanding that first and foremost, we do this by faith, all right? And now because we have faith, we fear him. What do you mean we fear him? Well, you'll see as we go hand in hand. The fear of God is one of the most important subjects in all the Bible. It is sometimes fear of God, fear of the Lord. And I'm going to get my sermon notes here. Um, Yeah. Okay. The first command is one of the most important themes in all of the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Whether it says fear of God or fear of the Lord, the concepts are synonymous. This is not just having an awe of God, but being afraid of him. I really want you to understand that sometimes it's watered down with some studies where people want to say, I hear on the radio, oh, it's just an awe. No, this is, this is critical that we understand that when you don't do the right thing, you will get in trouble. God will allow the consequences of what happens to you come either on this life or the life to come. 
what I want to put this, I put this slide here next. I often remember, it haunts me, um, that John MacArthur always used to say um, that uh, he, he used to give us a warning in life, and uh, he, he said, you're, you're glad that I'm, I, I give this to you now. And, it, and I've always, I relate that to this, is that and, and the slide that I got didn't spell the word judgment correct, and I have no idea why. But it, it took it from the Ecclesiastes passage. And it, the idea that I'm trying to communicate here is you come on a Sunday morning, you want to be encouraged, and I want to encourage you, and you want to be uplifted, and I want to be uplifted. But the reality of it is, is sometimes, sometimes people have to tell you hard things. And, and, and the awareness that you need to fear God because judgment is coming, I hate for any of you to come before God and all of a sudden realize, oh my goodness, he was serious. Oh my, he wasn't joking, whether you're talking me or the Bible, you know, because the Bible says, fear God, because judgment is coming. And when it comes, there's gonna be just you standing before God. And you're gonna slide here, I'm gonna show you that in a second. And you're gonna be very thankful that you were warned. And so let's go into this now. One author said this. I thought it was really interesting. I think it was, um, let me see if I get the author, um, from Kyle and Delich. He said this. The very gist of this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, I thought was interesting. He says, is to fear God. It's almost verbatim. It's um, said in verse chap- chapter 5, verse 7. It, this concept of fearing God is in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8. Um, twice in chapter 8 and then here in chapter 12 and this author said this fearing God is the gist of this book it's the kernel and star of the whole book the highest moral demand that mitigates its pessimism that mitigates pessimism and hallows I want to say this right um, udamonism udamonism let me explain I, 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 I read that quote it was from a very well-known Bible commentator, um, com- um, commentary, Kylan Delich. And I thought to myself, what in the world? That, if I read this again, the fear of God mitigates, it mitigates pessimism, and it hallows Udamonism. And I said, I don't even know what Udamonism is. And let me just as a brief note, when you read something, you don't know what the word is, it's far better to look it up than to go on and act like you didn't, you, know, you knew how does the fear of God stop the inactivity of pessimism? Well, listen, when you're pessimistic, you know, half empty, half, you know, half empty, not half full, you're the person who's half empty, and you're, you're discouraged. If you fear God, you remember that God says, go out and do these things. You, when you're pessimistic, you're full of reasons why you're not going to do something. God says to be faithful, you know, you know, keep, um, you know, keep your sobriety, all right? 
oh God, I have so many pressures, I have so much problems and blah, blah, blah. And what does it matter? It doesn't matter. Life is meaningless. Therefore, I don't, I don't care how I'm going to live. Well, therefore, I, you know, I'm really pessimistic. And so therefore, I'm just going to go out and drink. God says, no, no. You know, if you're pessimistic, then you fear God. It's going to prompt you to say, no, I'm not going to give in to drinking because I'm going to fear God. Or, you know, the idea that, oh, I'm so pessimistic, nothing ever works out, I'm not going to reach out to my neighbor, you know, I've reached out to nine out of my ten neighbors, and none of them believed, why should I reach out to my tenth neighbor? Well, because, fear God. You know, I don't know if those illustrations work perfectly, but the idea, when you look at the fact, when he says in verse 13, the conclusion when all is heard is fear God, he starts with that very first thing, that's a command. And when you want to come up with an excuse as to why you're not going to be involved in Christianity or serving God or doing the right thing, you have to remember, you can be as pessimistic as anything, but you can't use that as an excuse. You can't use that as an excuse. And then there's the other expression. Well, let me explain. Here, as a counterbalance, I've been sharing with people lately that I've been listening to these old Billy Graham messages. Um, I just got that... uh, uh, Sirius XM radio, and there's a station that's just dedicated to Billy Graham messages. And so I've been listening to the 1951 message, 1955 message, um, and it was ironic that I found this, even though I had heard it in a, in a message this week. And the idea is, is that Billy Graham talked about dealing with pessimism, and he dealt with the fact that when you, are, you get pessimistic and you get bummed out, he likes to go to the last page of the Bible. And he equated it to the fact sometimes when he reads, when he reads a novel and the hero looks to be, look, you're going to lose and everything looks distraught, he likes to just peek to the last few pages. What happens? How do they, or do they make it? And if they do, it makes it easier for him to read. Well, how many of you guys, when you read, when you live through life and you feel as if, wow, Life has kicked me down. It beats me down. And there's no reason anymore for me to fight for this God stuff that I need to, why should I, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because, look, I've dealt with death in my family. I've dealt with people that are sinners. I've dealt with, I've, I've dealt with people taking advantage of me. I've dealt with business going bad. I've dealt with blah, blah, blah. And you can give all the reasons why you're pessimistic. Well, the balance to being pessimistic is the fact that I've read the last page of the Bible, and it's all right. We win. And, and, and that's important for us to remember. And especially when you go through this book of Solomon, I mean, Solomon's Ecclesiastes, and it reads about, you know, someone's really faithful, and they die young. Well, that's just not fair. Or someone's such a jerk, and they end up rich. Well, that's not fair. And I've been really smart, and yet everything I've tried has failed, you know, in business and life and whatever. It's just not fair. Well, we got to remember, it's just for a brief time. In the end, we win. And, but see, what happens is why fearing God comes into this is because when you become pessimistic, you give up. It doesn't matter if I stay with my purity. It doesn't matter if I stay with my sobriety. It doesn't matter if I stay faithful in service. Yeah, it does, because you're going to have to answer to God. This is why it's so critical for trying to figure out what's my meaning in life. I don't know if your life's going to be easy. I wish your life would be easy. 
your life probably isn't easy. And what's more frustrating, where you come to this next one, I want to say it right, Udomonism. When I looked it up, it's the th- philosophy that, that says, because I'm a good person, I expect good. And, and why that quote hit so hard, hit home, is that when bad things happen, when I expected good, I sit, end up sitting around and saying, I'm not doing anything. Because I had the philosophy that, look, I've given my life to the Lord. I've given my life to be faithful to God. And I surely shouldn't have disease or death or, or bad things happen to me. Well, that's why you read the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's filled with bad things happening to good people. That blows the theology of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And, and the, you know, even though we don't preach it, it still creeps in. I've given my life to God. Why is this happening to me? Well, again, if you want to come to an excuse as to why you're not going to serve God, the reality of it is, is you need to come to the point in your life where you've got to say, I'm going to hold the fear of God over my expectations. And, and that's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's really, really hard, okay, because I've lived it. And, and I've got to say to myself, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do the right thing day after day, week after week. So it stops inactivity from bad things happening when I always expected good. Now, here's this quote. I really, if I get the exact quote. Let me see. Yep. Again, Kylan Delich said this. Okay, Ecclesiastes ends where the book of Proverbs begins, and we're going to be there in a second, with an admonition to fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an attitude of reverence and awe that his people show to him because they love him and respect his power and his greatness. The person who fears the Lord will pay attention to his word and obey it. He or she will not tempt the Lord by deliberately disobeying or playing with sin. And an and unholy fear makes people run away from God, but a holy fear brings them to their knees. And so, in response to a loving God, it's so critical that we have this concept of fearing God so that you're not somebody who says, oh, I'm just going to play a little bit with sin. If you want to have a meaningful life, you don't play with sin. You're afraid because you're going to have to answer to God. And, and, and with this... We've been studying the attributes of God in Sunday school. This idea of omnipresent. God is everywhere. And he's omniscient and he knows everything. Be aware of that, not from a bad standpoint, but from the awareness that God knows everything you do, so you can't do anything in secret, which is good. It's because it keeps you from sin. And as this goes on, this is the, the, the um, quotable Oswald Chambers and... Uh, uh, He wrote Utmost for My Highest, right? Yeah. He, this, this quote blew me away this week. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Isn't that something? I, I, I thought that was, that really hit me. That really, really hit me. Because I remember being intimidated by people that would come into my life like, oh, you're not going to witness to me because you know, I'm so powerful, blah, 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 whatever. No, I need, to, I need to witness to you because I fear God, not you. 
here's three challenging passages. And I'm going to ask you to turn to each one of them. I, want, I put these up here instead of bringing them up individually. Is, you know, the fear of God is throughout the Bible. It, numerous passages. But here are three that I think if you un- understand these three and grasp these three, it will greatly, greatly impact you. Turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. This is when God is bringing judgment to the people. And he says this. And I'll pick up in the context, verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with a mighty power, Isaiah is quoted, and instructed me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, you're not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all the people call it conspiracy, or you're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. I don't know if you've ever thought about the concept of dread. Why does God tell the people of Israel this? Remember, the book of Isaiah is, comes at a time when God is bringing judgment upon the northern tribes, and then he's giving a warning to the southern tribes. God is saying, you better dread me, because I will bring in the, these consequences that if you cross me, you will be in trouble. Well, the northern tribes ignore God, and they're never heard from again. The southern tribes are only kept around eventually after their judgment, after they get spanked, because God wants to bring about Jesus, and he's going to be faithful to his promise. The idea of dread, I don't know if these eyes catch it, but it's something that where you're terrified. You're really afraid. Think of God being aware of everything that you do and everything that you know. I'm not trying to diminish this at all. I want you to understand. God says, in some sense, you have to dread me. You have to be conscious of the fact that I don't play games. And so, the next passage, well, oh, I know. (laughs) I remember this one before I get to the next passage. This is something I thought you would all like to remember going forward um because i was doing this thing i did a little word study on dreads dreadlocks and i was doing dread and and i wanted to get a good definition and kept coming dreadlocks dreadlocks and i thought to myself yeah there's all these dreadlocks and so i did what how did dreadlocks come about why would the word dread fit in with dreadlocks and there was a movement that was dealing with the end of the world, that God was going to bring about the end of the world. And here's this quote from this source that I found. It said, the followers of this movement called themselves the dreads, signifying that they had a dread or fear or respect of God. Emulating Hindu and Nazarite holy men, these dreads grew matted locks of hair, which would become known to the world as dreadlocks. And the hairstyle of the dreadlocks, of the dreads, this term dreadlocks stuck. So this is an opportunity for you to witness, because there's a lot of people who wear dreadlocks today, right? And you can go up to them and say, do you know where that came from? It came from a group of people who thought the end of the world were coming. And you can also then pull it in to give them the answer, all right? A little side note, that was fun. All right, Proverbs 1-7, turn there. Proverbs 1-7. Proverbs... I encourage you guys all the time, read, read Proverbs, read Proverbs, read Proverbs, right? Um, fear of God, fear of the Lord, it runs through here. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That expression, beginning of knowledge, foundation. We've used this before. I never used this picture before. I thought I'd just use this one. You can see a nice foundation. The house is nice and straight. You get a bad house, it doesn't have a good foundation. You can't have a good house with a bad foundation. You can't have a good life without a good foundation. What's that foundation? Fear God. Fear God. I'm not going to play games with God. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to be unloving. I'm not going to be impatient, unkind. You know, and when I do mess up, I'm going to confess it. I mean, this is what I want to let you guys know. I'm not going to be a perfect person, but I fear God so that when you catch me doing something wrong, then I'm going to confess it and say, you know what? I did. I was a little impatient there. I, was a little, I said something a little unkind with my words. I, I, I'm going to confess it. So you understand, I fear God. And, and, and you need to fear God so that in the secret or in the public, whatever it is, you're aware that God is not going to play games. And so you want to build a good life? Fear God. You want to mess up? Ignore this. But some of you have messed up, and what you could do is repent and say, look, I'm going to go forward and fear God. One of the greatest economic principles, remember I studied economics One of the things I've learned is the idea of sunk cost. If you've messed up your life in your your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, you want to say, okay, this is messed up, but from this point forward, I can go forward. It would be far better to go forward right with God than to go and say, you know, I've messed up in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, and everything's done now. No, you still, even if you had one day of living for God, it's going to be better having that foundation than not. We'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This will be our last passage. I, was, I wanted to give you three that I really think if you grab, grasp the idea where we're talking about fear, why is it so important, how this all figures in. This last passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. The Apostle Paul is talking about ministry, and he's talking about a philosophy of life. And he says this, In chapter 5, verse 1, 2 Corinthians, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is is our house, is torn down, if our body is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Look, you know, this life that we live, we get older, our bodies break down, we die, our we get killed living for God, whatever it is. Whatever happens, we recognize this is only temporary. Verse 3, or verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, and who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. We continue to walk with God. We walk not thinking. The idea of not by sight is, boy, everything isn't easy now. My life isn't perfect now. That's what that is. The idea of, you know, he's looking around and he says, everything I see, everything I, I, I touch is upside down. I'm hated. I'm isolated. Things are not easy for me as a believer. I thought that philosophy of everything good should happen to a believer 
should happen to me, well, it's obviously that's not the faith that we're to have. We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So here's what I'm trying to get at as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes and it's talking about fearing God, fearing God, fearing God. Because the ultimate idea is that you have to please God no matter what you feel like. And you think, well, where in the world is this going with fear? Well, look, isn't this interesting where this is going? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that's what... I, I often I try not to put uh, pictures of God or whatever, and you know, try to limit that with these slides. So to the best I could, I came up with this image, and th- here's a light up here. It's supposed to be the beam of seat of God. There's some of the angels there, but if you could catch it, that's one person. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I do think there is aspects of you know I stand there alone, in the sense before God. Now, maybe Jesus will be right next to us, right? But there's, this is the idea of being a seat. We're appearing before Jesus, even for believers and how we're rewarded for our faith. The idea is that you will stand there alone. Think that through. At that point, there is no hiding. There is no lying. There is no misrepresentation. You know, oh, God, I really intended to do this. No, you didn't, and you never did it. You know, God, I really didn't think, I didn't want to go into that sin. But this is what you did. You did do it. This is what you're going to have to explain to God. You're going to have to say, God, I really never served. I really never gave. I never really ministered. I never really read my Bible. It really wasn't important. That you're, that's when the truth is going to come out. But this is why I want you to be prepared. If you're going to be able to sit there and say, God, I live faithfully. I was someone who studied, served, gave, whatever. And, and things weren't always working out for me. I feared you. Look at the very next line. Therefore, knowing that God is loving and kind, will always let things go. No. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. What the Apostle Paul was fighting was that people were thinking he was illegitimate, and he's saying, no, you know, we're legitimate, and we know that we're really living for God. And so that's what I say to you. I say live for God knowing that you and all your friends were going to have to answer to God. It's just that simple. So where do we take this? I get this. Our challenge then is this. This is what we've been saying. Take cons- consistent steps to live with this resolution. Keep your heart focused on God. And the key is to have a fear of God. I wrote this. I don't know what, you're, what will befall you in life or what already has, besides what I know specifically about you. But having a fear of God in many ways is like having a faith in God because you believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But I think fear comes in a little different than faith because it contains more of the warning. So I do warn you as I warned myself this morning, God does not play games. He is serious about rewards as well as judgment. And if you want a meaningful life, fear God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for what you've given us in this passage in Ecclesiastes, how the concept of fear runs throughout Scripture. 
And I pray that all of us have this awareness. Yes, there's no condemnation for us who are believers. Yes, we who are in Christ Jesus will not have to fear going to hell. But we will fear loss of reward. We could have greater reward for how we live our life. Oh, Father, how I pray that everyone here will have great reward, that we'll just be overwhelmed by the church at Christ, Christian Fellowship Church in Hammond, how much reward we got, because we believed. And when we got pessimistic, we didn't give up. And when we got our world turned upside down, we were, we were expecting our life to be easy, we still stayed faithful. Help us to be people who are always having that healthy fear that awe of you, but the concept of dread, the concept of the fact that we're not people who play games. And if there's someone here today that has never given their life, it doesn't matter if they've attended our church 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, whatever. If they've never committed to Jesus Christ, right now, they just do that. The Bible says that a man must be born again. The Bible says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father through me as it speaks for Jesus. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I pray, God, the Bible says if anyone turns, that you'll hear them, that confess with their mouth and believe with their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, God, how I pray that people believe the Bible here. And for us who do believe, how I pray that we are people who live as if we do. In Jesus' name, amen.